0: There was an interesting question on Twitter the other day, Dustin Shut of Saturday Tradition. He tweeted, if you have to pick one current Big Ten coach to win one game, any game against any opponent, is the answer Kirk Ferentz right now? For me, no. For me, it's Mark D'Antonio, but it's interesting because unlike every other Power 5 conference, it doesn't seem to be even remotely close to agreed upon. Like, it's Saban in the SEC, no question about it. It's Chris Peterson in the Pac-12, Dabo in the ACC, Lincoln Riley in the Big 12. I don't see any... I wouldn't even entertain any other debate for those conferences. Like, as much as Mike Leach has proved over his career, it's Chris Peterson in the Pac-12, and it's not even close. As much as Matt Campbell, what he's done in, in a few seasons at Iowa State, and as much as everybody likes him, it's still Lincoln Riley in the Big 12, and it's not even close. Like, I love Kyle Whittingham, but those four... Saban, Peterson, Dabble, and Riley, it's not even debatable. So I want to know who's your pick for the Big Ten. I'm D'Antonio, and regardless of who you have first, who is second and third on that list? I have no idea. I don't know if it is Ference. I don't know who I'd put second. All things equal, you trust one coach to win one game. Probably Pat Fitzgerald is second for me. But I think that's the really interesting part there, is the Big Ten, who's first, second, and third? No matter who you have first, who is second and third on that list? Andrew Doughty here on the High Motor Podcast this week. It is the final episode before we have actual football to talk about. And on this week's episode, we have Mark Mangino. I had a great chat with him. I'd recommend sticking around for the entire thing if you can. He tells a great recruiting story uh, at or, or near the end of the conversation. So thank you for dropping by. This is the final episode of the High Motor Podcast before the 2019 college football season kicks off on Saturday. This week on the High Motor Podcast, we have former Kansas head coach Mark Mangino. Hey, coach, thanks for joining the show. I saw that you were uh, at camp with North Texas last week. I know you know a lot of people down there in Denton. How was it for you?
1: Oh, I had a great time there, you know, spend the week with uh, the Mean Green and, um, you know, just a lot of fun. I appreciate the fact that they invited me in and just go to practice in meetings and it, it, it was great. And, of course, I have a lot of ties there. You know, Seth Luttrell uh, played running back for us uh, at Oklahoma and uh, was a heck of a player. Uh, he's the head coach here, so we've always—he's always been a guy that we've, you know, we've kept in touch. Uh, I've got my son there as an assistant working with quarterbacks. Uh, I've got a f- former player, Adrian Mays, coaches the tight ends there. Uh, George Matsakis, who was my director of football operations at Kansas, is in the same position um, at North Texas. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, just a good time and everything was great except for the 102 and 103 temperature on the practice. So other than that, I had a great time.
0: So what can you tell us, speaking about Seth Littrell, he's getting a lot of attention lately for the work that he's done with the experience that he has. He was in the headlines last year um, uh, with the Kansas State job opening. I'm not asking you know, for any sort of insight as to what happened there, but you know, what can you tell us from your perspective which Coach Littrell that makes him such an attractive candidate to, to potentially take a job like a Kansas State and take over for a Bill Snyder?
1: Well, Seth, you know, going back to his playing days, you know, uh, he was football, football, football. I mean, he loved to practice. He loved to play. He's pound for pound. He's one of the toughest guys I've ever coached. Uh, he's one of the nicest people. He's very considerate of people. Uh, he has a great relationship with his staff and his players. And at North Texas, what he's done is he's, number one, he's recruited very well, he has upgraded the talent level there and then uh you know the, he's an offensive guy, so their offense has been pretty good and and, and I suspect they're gonna be really good again this year uh looking at him uh number one, they have uh, Mason fine, one of the top quarterbacks in the country operating there out of uh north texas you know he's a he's a battle tested guy he's put up big numbers uh so when you have a quarterback, you've got a chance and and I think they this year they're much faster and more physical on defense. But uh, Seth is just a hard-working guy, uh, very smart. Uh, But uh, I think one of the biggest things about Seth is, you know, when people interview him and talk to him, he's not a pretentious guy. He doesn't think it's all about him. Uh, He thinks it's about the players. And uh, he's really an attractive candidate and will be. Uh, An attractive candidate again this year for a Power 5 job. One of the things you have to understand, though, Seth is very loyal. He really likes it in Denton. Uh, He's got a great relationship with the athletic director there, Ren Baker. And I don't think Seth will leave unless it is a really, really tough job to pass up. Uh, I don't think he's going to be interested in a lower level power five program. I think he's got a great situation at North Texas and he's going to be very patient because he likes it there.
0: Now I'd like to go back on your career if you don't mind. So after you graduated from Youngstown state, you didn't get into coaching until several years later. What exactly were you doing those years? And then what kind of led you to coaching?
1: Well, I was coaching when I was finishing up my degree. So I was coaching high school ball as an assistant. And then, um, Bill Narduzzi at Youngstown State offered me a situation where I would help they had a veteran line coach who was getting ready to retire. And he um he offered me a position to work with the offensive line and he would pay for my education. And you know, it was a too good of an opportunity, and I really enjoyed coaching for Bill Narduzzi. He was a great guy and a great person. Uh, but unfortunately he was let go at the end of that season and Jim Trestle came in. So I was packing my office like the rest of the coaches. And for whatever reason to this day, I do not know. The athletic director sent his secretary down to my office and said, do not uh, do not pack your office. So I didn't. And then he hired Jim Trestle. And I worked a year with Jim Trestle. And then I went on to coach uh, NEIA Balls, a line coach and an offensive coordinator for about three years. And I coached a high school team in Western Pennsylvania for a year and really didn't enjoy it. I didn't think it was my cup of tea. So I wanted to get back into college football and I was able to get on at Kansas State as a, a volunteer assistant coach, a position that they had at that time.
0: So, how did that exactly happen? Did you have a relationship with uh, Bill Snyder prior to then? How did all that go down where you ended up going to Manhattan?
1: Well, uh, Coach Snyder, I had met him at a convention through a friend of mine and uh, talked to him briefly, you know, never said anything about a job, but This was a year or two before. And then uh, a real close friend of mine was the line coach at Kansas State, John Latina. And John uh, spoke on my behalf when I tried to get on the staff there. And uh, Coach Snyder uh, helped me. And through John, it was able to work out. And you probably know the rest of the story.
0: Yeah, and then a decade later, you have that opportunity after going to Oklahoma for a few years, you have the opportunity to come back to to Kansas, what was the interview process like for that and then ultimately accepting that job? How did that whole thing work?
1: Well, uh, you know, I've told this story publicly. It's well-documented that, you know, initially when they contacted me, I I, I really wasn't interested. Uh, you have to understand I was at Oklahoma, offensive coordinator, a year removed from a national championship, coaching with Bob Stoops and other friends on the staff. It was a great situation. So initially, I turned their overtures down. Uh, they were rather persistent uh, about it, but I, I still just told them that, you know, I just moved there. I hadn't been there three seasons. Um, but I, I've been told now, I don't, I've never been told this personally by him, but I've been told that Gal Sayers sat in on an uh, interview and that he he told the committee that I was their guy. I've been told that by several people on the committee, but I've never been told that by Gal himself. Although Gal was very good to me and very supportive the whole time I was at Kansas, they felt like if Gal Sayers says he's the guy, we got to go get him. And you know, they just kept calling me, and you know, then my agent and things like that. And so I thought, what the heck? Lawrence is a great town. Kansas is a uh, KU is a beautiful campus. Uh, they should be able to win in football there. I, I, I don't, you know, at that time, I didn't know what the issues were, but I felt like they could. So eventually I took the position uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was a situation where it's hard to walk away from Oklahoma, but I did.
0: And you said you didn't know what what the issues were. Are you referring to something specifically when you say that?
1: No, the general climate, the culture, you know what why football couldn't win there because it's a beautiful place you can recruit to lawrence i mean it's not easy to but you still you know you have a great selling point with the university and lawrence close to kansas city um you know and they've had some periods of success you know i think uh you know glenn mason did and pepper rogers but it had never been sustained and that concerned me a little bit
0: so you weren't actively looking for a head coaching job am I right with that or or maybe you were you just didn't initially you didn't feel like Kansas was the right spot well where were you at on that
1: well, well I, I wasn't I had planned to spend more time in Oklahoma I thought I'd spend five or six years or at least before I'd consider you know being a head coach uh, so it wasn't even on my radar
0: what do you think would have happened if if you didn't give in or if Gail sayers didn't step up and you and you had just rejected that job you say you think you would have been in oklahoma five or six years uh, i know it's kind of it's impossible to project it but where do you think your career trajectory would have gone from oklahoma if you had passed on kansas
1: well you know that's
0: you know that's conjecture i mean
1: i i don't know could have been much better Maybe made it turn for worse for the worse i don't know you know i'm just not good at all that but uh you know you i don't know i'm not complaining
0: you know i
1: just i don't know
0: and then a a few years later i was a freshman at kansas in 2007 so i i mean i know what the feeling around the program was like but in terms of the feeling inside of the program walk us through 2007 did you guys have an idea of how good that team was going to be earlier in the season Uh, i think a non-conference play for example i think you had a couple of blowouts. at what point did you did you know that this was just a special team
1: well, I started to feel it during the spring, that, you know, that we were going to be a good ball club. How good I didn't know, but I thought we had some pieces in place on defense, we had some pieces in place on offense. Uh we had some quality players that could play for any team in America, and it was just a matter of trying to keep it all together, stay healthy and just you know, our thing was as a coaching staff, we just kept coaching the little things, the little details, the fundamentals, the techniques over and over and over, which is a belief that I have. I believe coaches are teachers, and that's how I've always uh, viewed myself and, and tried to hi- hire people around me that are teachers. And, um, you know, early in the year, we had some big wins and stuff, but it it really, you know, it didn't matter. You know, there's a big old schedule. But as we started to go along and, you know, started to win, did my very best to keep our players focused on not what's going on outside, but what takes place on our field and our meeting rooms. Still pay attention to details. Keep yourself grounded, you know. I I told our players all the time, I said, you know, years ago when we were trying to win games and weren't having success, a lot of people were booing us and not showing up for games. So the only ones that have come back are the ones that were booing you. Now they're cheering for you. So it really doesn't matter. They come and go. But all those guys in this room, were together. And, uh, you know, uh, I thought our kids did a good job of staying grounded. Fat, uh, different parts of the media that had mocked them in early years are now singing their praises. You always have to be careful of that, you know. But it's just the public in general. It, it's, it's how the public is. You know, when you win, they love you. When you lose, they hate you. Let's just stay on this steady track here. Let's just count on each other in this room and out on this field. And if we just stay on the task at hand, you know there'll be a good ending. But we can't look at the for the ending now. We still have a lot of games to play.
0: So as you were getting into year four, year five, and then the the great two thousand and seven season, did it feel like you were going to be at Kansas for a really long time?
1: Well, there's nothing guaranteed in life. I never gave that a thought. How long I'd be at Kansas? I was focused on. You know, I, I'm I'm not a guy who looks far ahead. I think you have to have vision for your program and your teams. But uh, I stay on the task at hand. And, you know, I was never concerned about how long I'd be there. Or how long did I want to be there? Those type of things never entered my mind.
0: So I had Dan Hawkins on the show a few months back, and he talked about how brutal it was for him leaving Colorado, and how just hard he took that. And I'm unsure how much you're willing to say here, but what were those those hours and days like when you did leave Kansas?
1: Well, at first,
0: uh, you know,
1: I'm not going to get into too many things because I don't want to. You know, ever I've read a million times where I have a con- confidentiality agreement with. Kansas so I can't speak I'll speak when I want you know if I had something to say I would and you know for the record it wasn't me that asked for the con- uh, confidentiality agreement but that's what they wanted and I was you know I went along with it as far as part of the settlement uh you know at first I was kind of shocked because I you know they're not really going to do this uh and then when they did uh you know you're a little disappointed you know you put you know you, you put 14, 16 hours a day, seven days a week for eight years into a program, take them places they haven't been, and then they want you out. You know, that's that's a tough pill to swallow. But I'll tell you the truth. I didn't sit around feeling bad for myself or anything like that. kind of felt bad for assistant coaches who now had children and things like that and trying to help them find jobs, and I got kind of uh, caught up in that. And I just felt like after a couple weeks, I said, hey, I gave my best. That's all you can give. And that, you know, if that's how it's going to work out, that's how it's going to work out. You you know, bad things happen to people all the time in life. I mean, losing a job's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, there's way worse things than that. And, uh, you know, I wasn't going to feel bad for myself. Uh, the way I was raised, I wasn't allowed to do that. You don't do that kind of stuff. You pick yourself up and you keep going. And that that's exactly what I did. I, I have to say that most of my concern was for my wife and children who had hit them hard and for, you know, guys on my staff that needed work. So I kind of occupied myself in those two areas. And, you know, I don't look over my shoulder much. You know, I'm, I'm pretty confident and feel good about how I ran the football program at Kansas, and, and I think there's a lot of kids that speak to that and a lot of assistant coaches, former assistants that speak to that. You know, you can't, you can't feel bad for yourself. You get knocked down on the canvas get up, get up. Nobody feels bad for you. Nobody cares, you know. Get
0: up. Where did you, when you left there, where did you think your, your coaching career was at? Did you want to jump back in right away? I know you said you spent a lot of time focusing on other people, but at what point did you did you focus on yourself yourself and start thinking about your career moving forward?
1: Well, the first year I was
0: busy doing things
1: and kind of just in catching up on things that I had missed for about 34 odd years, 33 years of my life. And then, uh, you know, I was starting to get re-energized to get back into coaching and my wife, uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer. So we spent about 18 months with treatments and supporting her and helping her and, you know, just trying to get her over the hump. And she was great. She had a great attitude and we took it on full speed ahead and, and, uh, you know, knock on what she's doing well now. So we had that to deal with. And, um, You know, that's why I say losing a job—that's nothing compared to someone you love having to battle cancer. Uh, So we did that, and then uh, Eric Wolford, who was a player at K-State when I was there, coached the Monte O line. He was a Youngstown State, and he called me and said, "Come on, come down here, you know, come up here and coach." And I said, "No, it's hard to get away from this beach and Sunshine. sunshine every day." But Eric is uh, really close to me and I went up there for a year and then uh, after that year I was stayed offering me a position and I went up there.
0: I remember I think it was either the year or maybe two years because you went to Youngstown State that was 2013, right? Correct. And then I think it was I think it was 2012 or late 2011 whenever Colorado made the change and you had tweeted that you were withdrawing from the Colorado search. Why was that the right decision for you and were there any other opportunities at that time and why did if so why did you pass on those and feel like Youngstown State was the right spot to get back into coaching?
1: Well, in Colorado, you know, there there were some smoke signals that from there that they were interested. And then they weren't, or at least they, I never heard back from them. So the only smart thing is to say you're not interested anymore because if it took that long to figure it out, you probably they don't want you, or by then you don't really feel like they're confident in you or whatever the case is. It was nothing against Colorado. I think it's a great job, but it just wasn't right. And you have to understand that as a coach, where you belong and where you don't. And you still make mistakes from time to time.
0: And then I remember last fall you tweeted, uh, the quote was, makes me consider getting back to the sidelines. You were talking about something specifically there and that you were thinking, you know, were you at that time? I think that was last October. Were you then and are you now still seriously considering a return to coaching?
1: Well, uh, uh, let me put it to you like this. Last year there were some contacts and people that called me and everything, but th- though the situations that were presented to me, I didn't think, You know, I was a good fit, or the place was right, or the time was right, and I'm I'm sitting in a position where I don't have to take something just to take it. I'm very blessed to not have to do that. Uh, Let me put it to you like this: I'm not actively looking for a job. I'm really not. But someday somebody might call me with something, and I might do it. I I find it unlikely, but if it happens, I would do it. But I really am not actively out pursuing positions anywhere uh, so i can you know you can understand that clearly that i'm not
0: do you, even though you're not do you still kind of keep i know you're in touch like you were down in north texas talking to seth latrell and you still we were talking before you still know you know tons and tons of guys still a lot of contacts in the industry and even though you're not actively pursuing something um do you or your agent still kind of keep your ear to the ground i guess what type of pulse do you have on the coaching moves in college football is it to the point where you know you know what is going to be opening and then do you start thinking or do you not even start thinking until you were to get a phone call
1: no well first of all i no longer have an agent people that deal with me deal directly with me and that's the way i want it at this point in my life um i don't uh you no know, i don't watch the ticker to see who got fired and fire out a resume a couple you know i'll make contact with some places that i think might have a chance or Could be a good fit. And then sometimes you find out a little more and you say, well, no, it's not right. Or they say, no, we're looking for some young millennial guy. And I understand all that. So that doesn't bother me. But um, now I'm not a guy that sits by the TV and checks the Internet every five minutes to see who got fired. If anything, I hate to see coaches fired. If you've been fired, you know what it's like to have a family. You know what it's like for the kids. You walk in a house and there's uncertainty about where they're going to be in school next year, where are we going to live, what are we going to do. Uh, so I'm not a guy that sits at home and cheers for coaches to get fired. If anything, usually when I hear a guy got fired and I think he was a really good coach and wasn't treated fairly, it makes me mad.
0: i got to ask you here a couple on-the-field things. So There's been a lot of rule changes in college football since you were a head coach and even you know, since Iowa State not too long ago. Uh, transfers, targeting, uh, recruiting calendar has changed a little bit. Is there any... New rule over the last uh, four or five years, whether that is a transfer portal or whether it is a new targeting rule, where you just don't like it and you don't think it's good for college football?
1: Well, the targeting, I'll tell you, I'm for anything that makes the game safer. Now, I don't want to dumb the game down where you're playing two-hand tag. But I'll tell you, with uh, head and neck, neck injuries and all the scientific work on CTE, I'm concerned about it. You know, that's that's somebody's son out there playing. That's somebody's brother, you know. I want it to be safe. When I go in a, in a home and recruit a kid and I tell his parents we're going to provide the best safety and equipment money can buy, I mean it. So now this is the way of college football doing their end of it. I know, it, you know, some people think it's silly, but how can it be silly to protect kids? And then uh, the, the, the rule that's really caught me off guard is how NFL free agency came to college football. I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Here, here, you, There's two sides to the story. I think when you recruit a kid and you have him in your program for several years and you invest in teaching him, making him stronger, faster, teaching him how to be a man, getting a good education, for him to get up and just walk out with no repercussions, that disturbs me. Now, here's going to be the other side. Well, how about all these coaches that leave? and go get a better job. Or, you know, that, that's an argument on the other side. And my answer to that is when you quit firing coaches before their contract expires, then you wouldn't have all these problems. You know, I know guys are going to move for better jobs. But, hey, you know what? In life, everybody wants to move to a better job. However, if you don't want some of these guys to run out because they're afraid they can't continue winning at your place or they have a chance to win somewhere else, you want to stop them? then quit firing them before their contracts expire. Do
0: you think that's the the only fix, in in your opinion, quit firing them? Or do you think that there's something else that can be done uh, for the situation that you mean?
1: My feeling, this is my philosophy about it. Some people agree, some won't. I think if a young man goes his first year to a program and he feels like it's not the right fit for him, he should be able to transfer after his first season. I think when you're in a program three or four years where they've invested you, they've educated you, I think you have to, if you want to leave for a year or two, at least the first year you have to pay out of your pocket.
0: Does that? Do you feel like that conversation? Well, going back to, for example, what you said um, about a recruiting players and saying that you're gonna you're gonna take care of you know a son as health and safety and all that. Um, your last few years, like when you're recruiting for Iowa State, for example, do you feel like the recruiting conversation changes when you're sitting and talking to a recruit? Uh, I'm not saying like that transfers will come up and, and when you're sitting in the living room, but Do you feel like there's more emphasis on commitment to a program now than than when you were recruiting 15 or 20 years ago? Is there not much difference there in terms of that conversation? Uh,
1: You know, it just depends who you're recruiting. You know, some kids, when you're recruiting them, they want to be at your school. They want to be at Kansas. They want to be at Oklahoma. They want to be at K-State. Okay, So a change of coaches is not a big deal to them. But you get some kids that they just want a recruiting coach that will coddle them and they can attach to, and you know, and they're going actually for the coach, which I think is a mistake. I think you got to go where you fit, where you get the best education, where you feel the most comfortable with the players and the community. And what happens is those are the kids that really get upset when a coach leaves. But not every kid does. I'd say nine out of every ten players on a team and I'm kind of shooting from the hip on this, maybe eight out of every 10, the coaching change has very little effect on them. It's the 10 or 20% guys that, you know, got attached to the coach and wanted to be with that coach. I don't think it's as big a problem as you think. Most kids pick their school because they want to be at that school. They want to be there. They want to play in that program. They want to represent that place. Maybe they were fans of that school when they were kids. I know that this is really a, Messy situation, but I'm back to where I started a minute ago. If you go to a school one year and you feel like you made a mistake, you should have the right to transfer, be eligible, and be in your education, your scholarship paid for. I think somewhere in the middle there, when a when a program invests a lot of time and energy in developing you as a student, as as an athlete, I think there has to be some kind of rule there that says, hey, you know, if you want to go somewhere else. I said earlier, maybe they got to pay their own way, or maybe they got to sit a year and they get paid. I'm not sure I know exactly how to finish the, the back end of this argument, but I'm concerned about guys. They jump in this portal. I mean, there's guys in August in the transport portal. I mean, everybody's practicing. Where are you going? How do you know? How do you know you don't belong there? So it's kind of tricky.
0: Hey, Coach, last thing for you here, and I really appreciate the time. We, we talked about recruiting a little bit, and this is more of just a curiosity question for myself is there any one recruiting visit that sticks out to you uh more than others for whatever reasons whether that was at at oklahoma k-state k-u but one visit that that you've just never been able to get out of your head and you think about
1: (laughs) there are hundreds of them but i think one of the funniest ones and i'm
0: not going to use any names here i was
1: at kansas state at the time and we were recruiting a, a running back in the fort worth area And the coach on the staff that was recruiting him uh, really liked the player. And he did look good on tape. You know, he said he was going to come up to uh, Kansas State this weekend and he was going to commit while he was there. And we were waiting for the guy. And in those days, you know, there were no commercial flights to Manhattan. You know, there was one of two options. Either coaches went and picked their kids up on Friday at the airport, or we flew him in on a little four-seater that most of those guys were not happy about being on. So we're waiting and waiting, and this kid is supposed to fly out of DFW to Kansas City. Well, the coach assigned to go pick him up was about 15, 20 minutes late at the airport. But he got there just in time where, you know, the second half of the plane was getting off. So he doesn't see this guy and he's looking and he's looking before, you know, there's nobody getting off. There's nobody getting off the plane that, is the player i mean the guy's not on the plane or so he thinks but he got there a few minutes late so he didn't see everybody get off so he's looking around so he calls the office and he asks the secretary what flight was he on she told him he said well i'm here he didn't get off what seat was he in you know know, the guy was just not there for whatever reason Uh, more likely he missed him so we're calling his house we're calling his coach everybody said he got on the plane Coach drives back to Manhattan, and we're trying to figure out what happened to this running back. One of our guys said, listen, I know a couple coaches at Missouri. Let me call over there. He got off the plane, and Missouri coach saw him, took him back to Columbia for the weekend. (laughs) You're kidding. (laughs) So, hey, what are you going to do, man? That's recruiting. It's it's, it's hard-nosed business.
0: (laughs) I know you said you won't use names, but... But I, I got to ask you, where did he go to school? Can you tell us that?
1: I think he ended up going to Texas Tech, I think. How about that? They saw him, and they, they realized nobody there for K-State was there to see him. So they said, hey, you want to come to – he said, sure. He got in the car and went to Columbia for the weekend. <laughs> uh, so, hey, hey, listen, things happen. You know, th- things happen. And, you know, what are you going to do? It was perfectly legal.
0: It yeah, reminds me of, I'll, I'll let you go here, but I'm not sure if you saw this story. Um, P. Head Walker was the old Wake Forest coach back in like the 30s and 40s, and he was recruiting this kid out in your home state, Pennsylvania, and he had, he was worried that the Wake Forest campus, this is back when they weren't in Winston-Salem, they were just over a uh, kind of small, nondescript campus in Wake Forest, mm-hmm. and he was worried this kid wouldn't wouldn't be that impressed with it. So he picked up this kid, I and mean, this is the 1940s. There's not There's not much signage everywhere. Picked him up from the Raleigh train station, uh, drove him over to Duke because Duke was a more impressive campus, and he ended up committing to Wake Forest. And then when he got down to Wake Forest, he was a little bit surprised. <laughs> so it's kind of the same situation there. But he stayed he at, really uh, I, I can't remember, I think it was Bill George. He ended up being a all-pro NFL player. He stayed at Wake Forest, so it, uh, it ended up working out. All right, that's Mark Mangino on the High Motor Podcast. Hey, Coach, uh, it was really a pleasure. I really appreciate the time this week, and uh, take care of the rest of the summer.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Have a good one.